Dixie. It's good to have Dixie and her whole family here this morning. If you didn't make the connection, obviously Dixie's singing, her husband's playing drums, her brother's on guitar, and her mom was playing piano today as they're in country for a little, as they're in country for several weeks. So thank you for blessing us with that this morning. We are focusing this morning on Revelation chapter 2. Over the last several months, we have been working through the book of Ephesians and Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And in that, Paul was writing the letter to address particular concerns in the church and also to encourage them with specific truths about the gospel that needed to be manifested in their individual lives and manifest in their church community. Well, how do they do? Scripture also gives us this letter in the book of Revelation chapter 2, which is their report card on how the church did with the instructions that were given to the church in Ephesus. In addition to that, so we're looking this morning at the report card in Revelation chapter 2, and then next week, we're going, to be, we're going to start journeying through the book of Timothy, 1 Timothy, which is Paul's instruction to Timothy as, Paul, as Timothy pastored the church in Ephesus. So it's dealing with these issues from a leadership standpoint and what should be the priority of the local congregation. So here is the report card of the church in Ephesus. This is written by the Apostle John of the vision that the Lord had given to him. So there's some um, symbolic language that's used here, and um, we'll explain that as we get into this. John sees, he says, the Lord says to him, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is what he says to them. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from this place unless you repent. Yet this you have. I hate the work. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of God. And pray with me. Father, we ask that you would open up your word that we might understand your love, and more than that, be overwhelmed by it, and that would in turn change into overflowing love from us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's often been said that a person's greatest strengths are also their greatest weaknesses, that the, a person's strengths have within it the seeds of its own destruction. So if you're a person who has drive and determination, it's quite possible that you may not be the very best teammate. That if you are someone who has a strength of being loyal, that you probably have the weakness of being loyal to a fault and unwilling to change or move forward or make challenges when that needs to occur. That if you are someone whose strength is kindness, care, and compassion, that that often corresponds with the weakness to have conflict when you need to have it or to receive, or to accept criticism. And we come to the church in Ephesus, and it certainly appears 
that their strengths also became their greatest weaknesses. And even if their issues are not your issues in particular, the warning that is given is a warning that is applicable to all of us. The passage begins with this description of Jesus walking among the seven lampstands. The lampstands are represent churches. And it is this image of Jesus walking in the midst of the churches, intimately knowing a church, such as walking through our halls, sitting in our small groups, sitting in our classrooms, walking through our ministries, and being around. It's this picture of Christ being present and concerned and caring for his church. And it's to his church in Ephesus that he gives this charge. He identifies that as Christians, that the Christian life is a struggle, and in the Christian life, therefore, we must patiently endure for Jesus, that the Christian life is a spiritual battle. This was addressed to the church in Ephesus in the letter that Paul wrote, and he identifies that there is a struggle that occurs in this life. There is a struggle in the Christian journey, that there is a battle taking place, and it is not against flesh and blood. That is, that the battle that you are dealing with is not the person who is embodying that battle. But there is a battle that occurs between, against rulers, against the authorities, the cosmic powers over the present darkness. A battle with the spiritual forces of evil in the present, in the heavenly places. And so there is a battle that occurs within our own hearts. There is a battle with spiritual forces of evil. There is a battle to live a life of, of obedience and to live a life for Jesus. There is a battle to hold to the truth of the gospel and to hold to the word of God amidst so many other voices and so many other things that would be pushing us to compromise. It is hard to live purely. It is hard to live a life of integrity and a Christ-like life. And Jesus commends the church. He says to them, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. The Ephesians were people who did not take their faith lightly. They might be people that we would identify with. These were people who understood the lordship of Christ, that Christ is not simply our Savior who rescues us, but that if he is the Lord, if he is our boss, if he is our master, then it is ours to follow him and to submit to him. They understood that Jesus Christ and faith in him makes demands upon us. And they readily accepted them. They accepted hardship. They accepted um, suffering. They accepted scorn. They accepted loss of relationship. They accepted loss of money. And these were Christians who worked hard at being Christians, and they would not compromise. They were really good Christians. They were, really, they were people that we'd say, wow, I wish I had the perseverance that they had. I wish I had the knowledge of Scripture that those people had. I wish I lived like they did. And they labored hard, and they endured suffering. They endured challenges. They pressed on when other people abandoned and turned away. And they labored to the point of weariness. Have you ever felt weary in your service to Christ? Have you ever felt like, yeah, I'm serving the Lord, but I'm exhausted by it, and it kind of annoys me and irritates me, or makes me mad. Have you, ever been, have you ever labored to the point of weariness? If so, and you've pressed on, Jesus commends you. He commends you for patiently enduring and living the Christian life when it was difficult and not just when it was easy. It's hard to live purely. It's also hard to think purely. He commends them and continues I know your works, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, 
and you have found them to be false, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. The Ephesian church faced false teachers, Christians, people who called themselves Christians, who were not Christians. And in every age and in every day, the biggest danger to Christians and to the church is not non-Christian forces outside, though they be formidable. The biggest danger to the church is of people who are professing to be Christians who are not Christians. Not merely those who are deceived, but who are deceivers. And the church in Ephesus tested those who claimed to be apostles, and they found them to be false according to the word of God. And the church is always exposed to the threat of people claiming to be Christians, who appear as Christians, who act like Christians, but who are not Christian. Every church battles with people, and is in a spiritual battle with people, and with books and authors, and with speakers, and with Bible studies that have lots and lots of Bible that appear very Christian that lead people astray. There's a need to be ever vigilant and not and to stay fixed on the Word of God and focused on it. Have you ever been exhausted in dealing with the junk of deception in our world? Have you ever grown weary dealing with false teaching? As parents, have you ever been tired of dealing with the junk that your kids get exposed to? Have you ever lost a relationship or friendship because you were unwilling to compromise biblical truth? And if so, Jesus commends you for your patient endurance. We must patiently endure for Jesus, and there is wickedness in this life through which we must endure. But in order to do so, the only way that it is possible is if we stay fixed on Jesus. Because what happens with every problem is that we need to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. And as we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, he equips us to deal with the challenges, to deal with erroneous teaching to deal with ungodly living. But what invariably happens is that as we deal with these problems and we deal with these challenges, our eyes become fixed on how do I eliminate the problem. This is a challenge. This is bad. This is a problem. How do I eliminate the problem? How do I eradicate the problem? And as soon as we become fixed on eradicating the problem, our eyes are no longer fixed on Jesus Christ. And so it appears to be that what happened here for the church in Ephesus is that probably their desire for sound teaching and sound conduct, though being one of their strengths, what is the corresponding weakness? It generated a level of suspicion, a level of mistrust in which love could no longer exist. They had the strength of holding to truth of not bearing up with those who are evil. So think about this. You take the strength of holding to the truth, of enduring while other people abandon the faith. You take those two things and you put them together with hardship. And what is happens? What is the corresponding weakness? It generates a distrust of people. That the circle of those you can trust, those who are trustworthy, starts to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And your eyes on who is trustworthy and who is a threat, you start to focus on those things. And as soon as you do, your eyes are no longer fixed on Christ. Similarly, if your strength is living purely and living in purity and having godly conduct, and you want to make sure that for you and for your family, that you have a family of integrity that they're exposed to good and right things, that they're not exposed to wicked things, that you as a parent, you want to protect your kids from those things. What happens is that you take living in purity 
living in conduct, plus endurance. And plus dealing with hardship. And you're faithfully serving Jesus. You're faithfully living for him. What is the result in the corresponding weakness as your eyes come off Christ? You start to say, well, well, I'm living for Christ. Well, what about them? I'm serving. I'm doing my part. You know, this wouldn't be an issue if everyone else was doing their part. And if they didn't do their part, I wouldn't have to work so hard. And I wouldn't have to deal so much if they would only do the things that they were supposed to do. And so your eyes shift off of Christ and love goes away. It reminds us of Jesus' admonition to Peter. That shortly after Jesus told Peter that he would suffer and die and martyr, be martyred for Christ, as Peter was processing this, he looks at the apostle John, and what does he say? He says, well, if that's what's going to happen to me, what about that guy? What about him? And Jesus says, what's it to you? You focus on me. And so there's this tension. That if your eyes are on anything, on doing something apart from Christ, if your eyes are on anything other than Christ, if your eyes are focused on these other aspects of godly conduct and your focus is on godly living, they're not on Christ. And here's what happens. This I have against you, Jesus says, that you have abandoned the love that you have at first. You do not love as you first loved. You don't love Jesus like the way you used to love Jesus. You don't love people the way that you love, used to love people. And these two things necessarily go together. Love for God results in love for people. Love for people results in love for God. That if you are someone who does not love people, it is an indication, no matter what you say about your relationship with God, it is an indication that you don't love God. That's not my words, that's Jesus' words. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. First John, uh, the Apostle John states it much more starkly. That love is the distinctive badge of Christians. It is the identifier of Christian community. That people would look at Christians and say, I don't know what they believe and I don't know what this Jesus thing is, but what I do know is that they love people. There is an overflowing love that comes from them towards other people. It's the mark of a Christian. And what happened to the church in Ephesus? They abandoned it. They abandoned that first flush of enthusiastic love. I doubt that they realized that it had occurred. I mean, they were being faithful, living for Christ. They were enduring patiently. Who could point a finger at them that they weren't loving Christ? Who could say that they weren't? I doubt that they realized that it happened. How about you? I mean, they were rightly intolerant of untruth. They were rightly intolerant of ungodliness. But in so doing, they lost love without which all else is nothing. That without love, the gospel is eviscerated and the heart of it is yanked out of the message. That without love, the words of Christianity are nothing more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That without love, I am nothing and I gain nothing. Because love is patient, and love is kind, and love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. 
It's not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It's this love that comes from God, love for God and from God, is this love that bears all things, that believes all things, that hopes all things, this love that never fails as it endures all things. And so, yes, there is faith and hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. And he looks at the church at Ephesus, Jesus does, and he sees people who are being really good Christians, being really obedient, and his charge to them is, you have abandoned the love you have at first. Not it just went away, you need to try harder. He said, you have forsaken the love that you had at first. How do those words strike you? That if you were to see Jesus face to face and his charge to you is, but this I have against you, you have abandoned the love that you have at first. This past week, as I was thinking on this and reflecting on this passage, the idea of standing before Jesus and hearing those words nearly brought me to tears. And standing there thinking, the thought that went through my mind to say, oh, if Jesus were to say to me, you, Walt Nelson, have abandoned the love that you had at first, the thought that went through my mind was, no, not me. Not, not me in the sense of, like, I couldn't do that or I'm incapable of that or I haven't done that, but, but, but in the sense of, Lord, say it ain't so. Say it's not so. Lord, Lord make, it, make that not be the case. Lord, would you, would you save me from myself and save me from forsaking my first love? So let me ask you, if you're a Christian, how does your love today compare with the love that you had at first? How does the love that you have today, your love for God, your love for other people, how does that compare from when you first became a Christian or if you grew up in a Christian home, when that time when you really owned your faith for yourself, when it was no longer your parents' faith but your own faith, how does your faith compare with that? And if you have abandoned your first love, what this passage calls us to is to say is not only we must stay fixed on Jesus, but if we have abandoned our first love, then we must return to Jesus. And here's how you do it. He says, remember, therefore, I have this against you who have abandoned your love at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What am I to do? Remember. Remember what it was like. Remember from where you have fallen. Remember what it was like. Do you remember, remember when you were a new Christian? You first owned your faith, and obviously this is addressing people who have been Christians for some time. You remember when your faith became real? And you know, it's, yeah, it's possible for it to slip away without realizing it. But do you remember, do you remember how excited you were about your faith? Do you, remember, do you remember like when it became real and you were, you were happy to serve just because you were serving and it was for Jesus? And if you got to serve for Jesus, that that was awesome? Do you remember that like, like, like you became a Christian and you started on your faith and you met someone else who was a Christian and you're like, wow, you're a Christian? Me too. That's so awesome. We're both Christians. Do you remember the enthusiasm to meet somebody else who who had the experience of God's grace that you yourself had? 
Remember that time of raw vulnerability. That, that moment of naked clarity when you realized that you were standing before God Almighty, that you were standing before your maker and you realized the depth of your own sinfulness and that you were, and as you realized that, that you were wholly responsible, that there was no one to blame and it was no one's fault but your own. You remember that moment of, of sobriety, of standing before God, knowing that you are completely and totally guilty, justly condemned, that you are standing before him unclean, filthy, contaminated. And in that moment, maybe you had an experience a little bit like the Apostle Peter when he finally realized who Jesus was, that he falls down at the feet of Jesus and he says, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And I do not deserve your presence, nor your mercy, nor your grace. Get away from me, lest I be destroyed. Or Isaiah, when he comes into the throne of God and he realizes where he's standing, and he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me. Remember that stark realization of the depth of your own sinfulness. Remember the words of the gospel as they came to you through the word of God that says to you, stand up, lift up your head because your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. That through the work of Jesus Christ, there is a Lord and he is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He, he will not always chide. He will not keep his anger forever. He does not deal with me according to my sins. He doesn't repay me according to my iniquities. And for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Remember when you realized and came to know that as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Remember. Remember that experience of the liberation of the bondage. Remember the peace that overcame you from the anxiety that you were experiencing. Remember that feeling of realizing God loves me. No, it wasn't that you realized that God loves me. It was you realized that God loves me. God, God, loves, God loves me. And because he loves me, he will never abandon me. And he, is, he will never forsake me. And he will never abandon me and he will never forsake me because Jesus Christ took my place on the cross. He took my punishment. He took my estrangement so that, so that I, that I, though guilty and filthy, that I could stand before the throne of the eternal God justified and made innocent that I would stand before him, not with the filth of my sin and my rags, but I would stand before him clean and holy, that I, who was estranged and an orphan from God, an enemy of God, would not only be reconciled, but be adopted and invited to the table of God Almighty. Remember, when you first love Christ, 
and how that turned into this enthusiasm and the, this whole new world. And certainly there was some naivety associated with it, but there was this overflowing love that you never had before, this love for God and this love for other people. You were just excited to be with the people of God simply from the fact that they were the people of God. That you were excited to serve because you're like, serve? Sure. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Sure, I'll do whatever. He says, remember from where you have fallen. Remember, consider your present love. And remember from where you have fallen. And those of you here this morning who are not Christians, what I've just described is an experience of what happens with a relationship with Jesus Christ that you have not, that you have not yet had. But it is there for you. And there is release from guilt. And there is forgiveness of your sins. There is freedom instead of fear. There is dignity instead of shame and it comes through a person named Jesus Christ. And what is different about Christianity is that Christianity is not a philosophy. It is not a code of religious conduct. And if you talk to the adherents of other religions, what you will hear them say, very sincerely, is they'll say, I, am, I follow the teachings of Islam. I follow the teachings of the Buddha. I, I follow the Eightfold Path. I follow the teachings of Confucius. But what you will hear from Christians around the globe, transcultural, across nations, is what you will hear them say is that you will not hear them say, what does it mean to be a Christian? I follow the teachings of Jesus. No, what they will say is, I have an active relationship with Jesus Christ who is dead and is alive today. You will hear person after person not say, I try really hard to follow this guy's teaching, though they do. What you will hear them say is, I have a living relationship, a personal relationship with the resurrected and living Jesus Christ. And it is available for you this day. And if that's something that you want in this experience, we would love to help you begin that relationship with Christ today. And for those of you who are Christians, the calling here in this passage, that if your love today is not what your love was then, he says, remember from where you have fallen and repent. The issue is not be more loving. The issue is that you need to repent. The central issue is now understood because the reason for the abandonment of love is because some other love has taken the control of your heart. Because if Jesus Christ is not your first love, something else has taken his place. And whatever is your greatest love is what controls your heart. And if something else has taken the place of Jesus Christ, what happens is that that love does exert an uncontrollable influence over your words, over your actions, over your attitudes, over your emotions, and it saps you of love for God and for other people. And for the Ephesian Christians, their Christianity took the place of Christ in their hearts. Their Christianity took the place of Christ in their hearts. Their greatest love was no longer Jesus Christ, but adhering to the teachings and conduct of Jesus Christ. And it sucked them dry of love. What is your greatest love? What is the one thing that you can't do without? And if it is not Jesus Christ 
repent. And you repent by confessing, Lord, I have loved something else more than you. Lord, I do love something else more than you. I love my spouse more than you. I love my children more than you. I love my reputation more than you. I love my success more than you. Lord, I confess to you that I have looked to all of these other things for happiness in my life. I have looked to these other things for satisfaction. I have looked to them for security, to make me feel significant, to give me worth and value. I have looked to all these things that are only found in and only in you and through you. I have looked to other things to get them from you. Lord, I confess that I have loved something else besides you that there is a greater love that I have had for them, and I repent of it. And the weight of this, that the issue being here of needing to forsake counterfeit loves and to love Christ, and the issue being our need to repent, he adds this warning, for if you don't, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. What is he saying? If you don't, your torch will be snuffed out. You'll be voted off the island. It'll be the destruction of the church. Because a church and an individual Christian can only survive so long on a loveless course. And if they repent, they may yet be saved, but if not, there's no hope. And then if you repent, and Jesus is your first love, there is something that naturally follows. He says, then, do the works that you did at first. Love lavishly. Serve cheerfully. And, and, And serve cheerfully. And you'd be glad to do so because you love Jesus. Why are you serving? Because I love Jesus. Why do I love other people? Because I love Jesus. And it's overflowing. St. Augustine, in the 4th century, wrote, he said, love God and do what you please. Love God and do what you want. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul. Love the Lord your God with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And if the Lord Jesus Christ is your greatest love, then do whatever you want. And what will happen is that your life will be overflowing with love for God and love for people. Brothers and sisters, may God make this overflowing love true of us. May God himself be our greatest love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I praise you that you are love, that you taught us to love, that you are long-suffering, that you do not treat us as our sins deserve, that you are slow to anger and merciful. Lord, may we remember your love. May we remember which you have redeemed us from. May we remember your love and mercy to us and the great love that you give us towards others and towards you. So Lord, would you replace any other love that has taken our hearts with love for you? Lord, may we remember and may we repent and may we be overflowing with love because of the abounding love that you shower on us again and again and again and they are new every morning. In your son's name we pray, amen.